Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender. We're back. Another episode. Look at us go. Uh, Just right off the top, quick reminder, uh, as of this recording, we dropped our Barbenheimer episode. It's our longest episode yet. Biggest cinematic event, biggest episode of the pod. And I mean, if you don't want to listen to Oppenheimer, just listen to the Barbie part. Yeah, we split it up very clearly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it is pretty light on the spoilers. So even though we said it would be a spoiler episode, it's not like our deep dives. Um, there's like a couple scenes or moments referenced, but we don't talk super in depth about things. So especially if you're somebody who forgets stuff, you're fine. Okay, you're in the clear. So check it out. It's uh, super cool, super fun, and we're super smart. So have a listen. Yeah. We'll have another special episode coming up because uh, our friend Lori from Queer Horror Cult, who we've had on the pod before, hosted a little mini movie festival of horror movies that she curated to show us just at her home, just had us over. We watched six movies back to back to back to back to back. Noon to midnight, baby. Moon, moon to midnight. <laughs> <laughs> moon to midnight. Um, yeah, noon to midnight. It was a full day. I don't think I've ever watched six movies in a row like that. But it was great. Stuck it out. She made lasagna, which was delicious. It was a fun time. And we're going to dedicate a whole episode just to that. Because obviously, if we tacked it onto this, we'd be covering 10 movies. And that's too many movies. So it sounds like we didn't see a lot of movies this week, but actually we saw a bunch because we saw Barbie again. Mm-hmm. Took your sister. Yeah, we did. And her partner. We did. Went for dinner. It was a nice time. Lovely. Uh, but in terms of this episode, if you did the math, we're only talking about four movies, a lot of which are really recent movies, 2022, 2023. Okay. Let's get into it. Let's let's stop the jibber jabber and get into the blubber blabber. Why don't you kick us off with the first movie of the week? 
All right, I had a mystery movie pick, and I picked the 2023 action comedy mystery, They Cloned Tyrone. It's directed by Jewel Taylor and written by Taylor and Tony Rettenmeyer. It stars the main three, John Boyega as Fontaine, Jamie Foxx as Slick Charles, and Tayona Paris as Yo-Yo. The synopsis, a series of eerie events thrusts an unlikely trio onto the trail of a nefarious government conspiracy in this pulpy mystery caper. What did you think of They Cloned Tyrone? I mean, right out of the gate, great title. Yeah, I I talked to you about this afterwards, but I have like a, I just like want to watch movies with titles like that. So the other ones I mentioned were Daniel Isn't Real and Let's Scare Jessica to Death. And I haven't seen either of them, but every time I like see the title, I'm like, I want to watch that. It could be a terrible movie, but I'm just like, there's something about like a sentence with a person's name in it. Yeah. That I like. So not, I'm not talking like, like I, I love the movie Monica, but just cause it's called Monica doesn't make me want to watch it. Right. It's that like full sentence with a name in it. Well, there's something about it too, that you expect something in the movie to pay off that title. Yes. You're expecting in this, that they are going to clone Tyrone, but it's the mystery of unraveling and unpacking exactly what that is. I, I too haven't seen the other ones you mentioned, but I'm assuming that they scare Jessica to death. Scare Jessica to death. Or like uh, a movie another movie I haven't seen, but there's a movie called A Man Escaped, where you it's about a man in prison and you can guess what he does, but it's about waiting for that thing yeah, to happen. No, it's there's no name in that though. No. But same kind of thing where they t- they tell you in the title something that's gonna happen to a person and then it pays off. I really like that too. Yeah, it's a, it's a good title. And the poster, like the cover art. Netflix does that bullshit, <laughs> like trash, like just a still from the movie with like a title over it that isn't from like the art department for the movie at all. But the actual poster for this movie is really good. I don't know yeah, if you've seen it. I have. It's, it's like really the yellow good. background. Yeah, with like this kind of like anamorph style <laughs> <laughs> yeah. head of, I think, I think it's John Boyega is at the very front of it, but um, yeah. Yeah, I, I like Title it. is compelling. It's very cool. And, you know, speaking of John Boyega, I quite like John Boyega. I haven't seen a lot of stuff that he's done, but I appreciate his affinity for science fiction. <laughs> yeah, and I think he's, what I know of him, uh, he seems to be pretty, like, active in the political world outside of film. And he's been really like outspoken against even properties he's been a part of, including star Wars. So I really like that. Yeah. And he likes having fun in his roles. Like he was definitely kind of the, I don't know if comic relief is the right thing, but he was definitely a lighter part of the star Wars films that he was in. And Attack the Block has a lightness to it while also tackling some very real social issues, but being also wrapped up in an alien movie. And I mean, that's very much what's going on in this movie, right? So the yeah. Wikipedia page for it says that it's, quote, conceived as a genre bending homage to black exploitation films of the 1970s, featuring elements of satire, mystery, horror, science fiction, and absurdist humor. Yeah. And that is for sure what it is. Yeah. And I appreciate that in both the storytelling, but also the visual approach, because they 
they have a bit of the film grain effect on there. I liked that. And like the artifacts, they had the little cigarette burns for the real changes, yeah, I even like though that. this is a Netflix movie. Yeah. Well, so it's this is a shame because it did have like some very limited theatrical releases. Like it, it did play in some theaters. Oh, cool. And it's a bit of a disappointment that it's not a wider release because I think this would look really good on the big screen. Well, I imagine a problem. I mean, I don't I didn't see the release date, but I, it seems like it came out same weekend as Barbenheimer. Yeah. I mean, it, it came onto Netflix that same week. Let's see. Release date. July 14th. No, it came out the week, week before. before. Um, so, yeah, I played at the American Black Film Festival on June 14th, 2023. Had a limited theatrical release on July 14th, 2023. And then streamed. Started streaming on July 21st. So, yeah, I think it would. And I, I, there's some people I follow on Letterboxd who did get a chance to see it in the theater and said, like, it looked really good. Like, the there's a bit of a reduction of the clarity of it when mm-hmm. it's on Netflix. Um, and I already thought it was, like, really stylish. Yeah. Um, both in its, like, way that it's, you know, using film grain and that kind of stuff to create a sense of time. But also just within the film itself, like the costuming, the set, the music mm-hmm. creates like a very particular style. Yeah. And achieves it very successfully. I think that this would have looked gorgeous on the big screen. We just watched it at home on Netflix. But I'm happy that it found a home like Netflix because I feel like of all the streamers, Netflix is the one that most people have. So it's nice to see them get the distribution through a rather prominent streamer. Yeah, I worry that films like this, though, just won't get the like clout they deserve or the traction they deserve when they go straight, not straight, but in some ways effectively straight to Netflix, right? Yeah. Well, and it's I feel similarly to Attack the Block. Like, I don't recall that getting a big wide release. Like I, I, I know it came to Metro and I don't know if it saw a big release. I don't even know if it ended up on a streamer or anything like that. Like a more, a more prominent streamer at least. Don't know. But if you haven't seen Attack the Block, we covered it on the show. Can it had a worldwide release? No. It had a limited theatrical release. Attack, Attack the, the Block, block had a yeah. limited? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, both movies deserve to be seen by more eyes, for sure. Yeah, this one, um, it's it's doing a lot of things because it's quite funny. Yeah. And it's got this, like, homage going on in it. Mm-hmm. It's also really smart. Yeah. So it's doing a lot, but it's doing all of it really well. And then, I mean, you noticed that, of course, the three main, like John Boyega, Jamie Foxx, and Tiana, Tiana Paris are all in, like, big Disney properties. Yeah. So John Boy again, Star Wars, Jamie Foxx in um, Spider-Man. I mean, I guess that's a Sony, but Sony slash Disney. And then Tiana Paris um, is in the kind of Miss Marvel part of the universe, but she was in WandaVision. She was great in WandaVision. And it makes a little joke about each of those, <laughs> like a little quick, little quick, tiny like reference, yeah. um, which I thought was smart and, and is also kind of, taking a little bit of a silliness out of these other projects that they've done 
as they kind of come together to do something that's um, a lot less machine. <laughs> yeah. Marvel movie machine. The director and co-writer, Jewel Taylor, he said that there's four films that he has specifically referenced as influencing this movie. Can you uh, guess what one of them is? Because you actually mentioned it while we were watching it. Oh, did I? I totally blanked on what I said. You'll be waiting forever for me to think <laughs> They of it. live. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, Groundhog Day, which I actually thought you've never seen Groundhog Day. No. But it does that. I'm a big fan of parallel scenes in film. Um, Barbie movie does that great mm-hmm. where you see shifts by having the same scene happen in a slightly different way. Run Lola um, Run. Run Lola Run is great. I mean, there's there's ones that are a little bit more like obvious, like a Groundhog Day, like this, like Run Lola Run. And then there's ones where it's just like similar things are happening. They're not like identical days. Mm-hmm. Um, so they live Groundhog Day, Napoleon Dynamite, <laughs> and it follows. You know, I, I can see all of that. And that's, <laughs> I, I love that because they live's got that science fiction smart thing going on while still being kind of over the top and actiony. And then you've got the silliness of Napoleon Dynamite, which this movie, like especially through the characters of Slick Charles and Yo-Yo can be really silly. Mm-hmm. But then like that dread of it follows. Yeah. It's quite like, I, yeah, all of that makes sense to me. And I love the way that this film blends these influences, blends these like stylistic and, and like past types of like genres of film to make something new that kind of blends it all together in a smart stylish way and then has something like smart to say while also being fun yeah i i thought it was i thought it was great and hearing those influences it all makes sense and clicks and gels for me i i mean i like all of those ones that you mentioned that i've seen and the cat, the main cast holds it down. I mean, I think that the chemistry between all of them is is great. I'm, I'm so I'm so on the fence about Jamie Foxx because he's another one of he's another actor like an Ed Harris, where like I feel like he's done pee pee poo poo things in the past, but I don't know what they are or if that's true, or if it's just that he's worked with pee pee poo poo people before. I don't know, but I think that Jamie Foxx is quite funny. Yeah. Because I think he comes from, I feel like he was on In Living Color. Like he comes from like a sketch comedy background. I mean, his lines in uh, Spider-Man No Way Home are some of the funniest lines in the movie. (laughs) Yeah. Like he makes me, he makes me laugh a lot in that. Actually, I haven't seen a ton of the things that he's in. He was on In Living Color. No. Yes. Yeah, he was on it. Seasons three, four, and five. And then he had his own sitcom, The Jamie Foxx Show, from 1996 to 2001. Who knew? Now that I think about it, too, I think David Allen Greer had a small role in They Clone Tyrone as well. And he was on In Living Color. He was the cop from Jumanji as well. (laughs) Have you watched In Living Color? Uh, A little bit. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Like you have all this knowledge of it. I I literally have a very small (laughs) knowledge of of In Living Color. But I think it was something where... It was usually on around the time I got home from school on like the comedy network. So I would just catch a little bit of it. And Jim Carrey was on it. So I'm like, oh, Jim Carrey. But also like it was mostly black comedians that were on it. And I'm like. Oh, a lot of Wayans. Yeah. And I was like, I'm I'm here for Jim Carrey. (laughs) What a white boy. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. 
yeah, I don't have much more to say about They Clone Tyrone. I mean, I was really excited that you picked it because I, I'd seen it pop in, popping up on Letterboxd by a lot of people that I follow that had watched it and quite liked it. And I was looking forward to it. It was really fun. I don't know necessarily how often I would revisit it, but I think it's super well executed. I enjoyed my time watching it. I recommend it. I do too. And I think most people have access to Netflix. So I think it's, you know, in the Barbie and Oppenheimer of everything right now, I think putting this onto your radar too. Good thing. Yeah, do it. How did they clone Tyrone make you feel? A simple sense of fun. How did it make you feel? Grateful for this smart, fresh movie. Small? I did think it was all that simple. (laughs) What's that? I didn't think it was all that simple. I think it's... I don't think it was simple. I think my sense of fun was simple. Gotcha. It's about you. You're simple. Yeah. Me, 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 me. Okay. For the next movie, we went to the theater for what was being marketed as a special screening. And we went to the 2022 horror thriller film, Talk to Me. It was directed by Danny Philippou and Michael Philippou and written by Danny Philippou and Bill Heinzman and is based on a concept by Daly Pearson. It stars Sophie Wilde as Mia, Alexandra Jensen as Jade, Joe Bird as Riley, Otis Donji as Daniel, Miranda Otto as Sue, and Zoe Tarakis as Haley. Synopsis. When a group of friends discover how to conjure spirits using an embalmed hand, They become hooked on a new thrill until one of them goes too far and unleashes terrifying supernatural forces. Oh, baby. I was really excited for this one. A horror movie from A24. Yes, please. And I've been looking forward to this since the trailer when the creepy hand turned into the two in A24. Oh, yeah. I keep telling people like, oh, yeah, we're going to go see Talk to Me. And then I make like weird hand motions that they're like, excuse me, what? (laughs) And I'm like, you know, like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So needless to say, looking forward to it. What do you think you talked to me? Um, so I was also really looking forward to this. The trailers were creepy. I did expect this to be kind of in that realm of fun horror. Like I didn't expect it to be a hereditary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had read like leading up to it that it's somewhere in between a body's body's bodies and a hereditary. So like more horror proper than a body's body's bodies, but not as scary as a hereditary. So you and I talk a lot about like entry level horror Mm -hmm. and we don't mean that to like diss the horror. What we mean is it's accessible for a younger audience while still being horror. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of like upper entry level horror where I feel like it's accessible to like a preteen teen age group. Well, also being like pretty gross and pretty scary. So it's kind of like once you've decided you like horror. Intermediate entry horror. Well, just not entry then intermediate horror. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like it's but I think. So I talked about this in my letterboxd review, but one of the first horror movies proper that I saw was The Ring. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we'll watch The Ring one day and talk about it. Um, and I think The Ring is kind of in the same realm is this where it's accessible it's not too heavy but it is pretty scary and I don't know why the fuck my mom was taking me to the ring my mom doesn't even like horror movies but I was 12 when I saw it and even though it is more intermediate horror 
it was kind of like an entry into horror for me because of the age I saw it at. And I feel like this could be that for some people who like see it when they haven't watched a lot of horror movies and it's more, it ends up being their entry level horror, but it's quite a bump up from like a horror line. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know? I mean, there's definitely, this is definitely a, 18A slash R rated movie. There is a very palpable sense of dread and fear and overall upsettingness <laughs> to the entire movie. It's a very it's a it's a very upsetting tone overall. Yeah, yeah it's quite it's quite it's quite creepy peepy. It's not rated 18A. You keep just saying things. Rated 14A. It feels pretty intense <laughs> for a 14A. But it is 14A. So teenagers can go to it without adult supervision. Oh man. Well, that's nuts. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> if you're 14 and going to see Talk to Me, be warned. Yeah, I mean, I one thing I'll say this tra- like the trailer definitely. I think Talk to Me did, did a good job with its marketing where the trailer definitely lets you know what the film's about and what you're getting into. But the movie took turns that the trailer didn't, not necessarily turns, but the the movie had focuses that the trailers didn't suggest. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that because the marketing wasn't misleading, but it also didn't give everything away. Yeah. So I love when that happens. This movie is actually genuinely so gruesome. Yeah. In a way that I didn't expect it to be. I expected it to be a little bit more like ghosty, a little bit more like ethereal horror. Mm. I didn't expect it to go so hard with the blood and the violence and the gore. Yeah. And there are some things in it that I was like, holy shit. Like I couldn't believe they went there with it. And particularly with the character that it does that, that experiences the most gruesome violence. Yeah. There were some sequences in this where I feel, I felt like I had to catch my breath after because it was so, I feel like if I was more prepared for it in a film like a hereditary or something like that, I, the recovery period would have been less because I'm kind of come to expect that. But this being marketed as a, I guess, 14, a horror movie, (laughs) it was more intense and more gruesome than expecting. So it took me a while to come down from those moments. But as a horror fan, I appreciated that. I appreciated that it wasn't all just in the trailers and that there were some surprises and turns that I wasn't expecting. And this is where I think, you know, if this movie had existed when I was 12 and I saw it when I was 12, it would have been like an indelible film that I probably loved for the rest of my life. But it is kind of in that realm of like Smile, The Ring, like that kind of thing where I think a casual audience can go to it. Like even somebody who maybe isn't into horror Mm -hmm. and it could either like really turn them off from horror or like really turn them on to horror. But I think what it's doing for me was much more effective than smile. Yeah. You made that comparison kind of coming out of there and I don't think it's necessarily story beat for beat, but like tonally, I think they both have a similar thing that they're going for but I would highly recommend Talk to Me Over Smile. It's also using a lot of, um, at least from what I've read, practical effects. Yeah. And they're quite gross. <laughs> and it's, it's super well and done. And it's quite good. And it's got that thing going for it 
that like say the ring had where I could see like a, a younger or, you know, any age audience really kind of latching on to the like ritual in it and like joking about it or like scaring each other with it. Mm-hmm. You know, like in the ring after you see it, when a phone rings, it's kind of freaky. <laughs> yeah. Or if your friend calls you and says seven days, you know, like don't do, don't <laughs> do it. Stop. It's scary. But I like, you know, here I could see people using the language they use when they're, um, conjuring spirits with the embalmed hand as per the synopsis um, amongst each other. And legit, if A24 releases a like statue of the hand, a ceramic hand or whatever, somebody was saying on Reddit that they should do a candle of the hand where after the candle burns, it's like still a hand underneath. (laughs) That'd be really cool. I have to say, you know, the hand, I really like the hand as a conduit or a device. It just has a very iconic look. Mm-hmm. And though I don't necessarily think that Talk to Me will become an iconic film, I think that that visual of the hand has staying power mm-hmm. and will stick in my mind at least. And I totally agree. I think if A24 or somebody doesn't release the hand as a decoration piece or a candle or something, missed opportunity. Because I think it's, I think it's really... A cool thing that would be a cool collector's item i didn't realize that this was going to be an australian made film i knew that i i appreciate i i look it's great accent so it's <laughs> I, I was happy to have it present here it, there's something about i feel like ever since i saw wolf creek as a younger person australian accents in horror movies just add a creep factor to it <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I make that connection. It's really silly, but yeah, I don't know what it is. God, the um, I mean, I don't have much to say about it, but the directors are like YouTube famous. Mm-hmm. And I tried to kind of like take a look at their YouTube, but it did not look like anything I'm interested in. Like it seems like a kind of smosh main channel kind of vibe. Right. But not comedy. But they're doing like action special effects like sketches and that's just like not my thing like when skinnamarink came out and kyle edward ball is um had a lot of success on youtube like he has all these like really creepy little shorts that kind of are in the same vein as what's going on in skinnamarink and i was like oh these are really good i really like these I I didn't even make it like 20 seconds into a video by these guys before I was like, I'm uninterested. <laughs> I thought maybe they had a horror channel and that, at least from what I saw, isn't the case. It was too confusing. There's too many different things on it. Yeah, it's kind of the same with um, like the Daniels. Like you can draw a line between what they were doing in their music videos and their early short films to what they do in their feature length films. But I will say, you know, not having a lot of knowledge of, uh, of the Philippines and their, their channel's called Raka Raka. Yeah. I thought that this movie looked really good. Yeah, it, did, it looked great. And, and I know I already mentioned it, but the special effects in particular are really impressive. And just the tone, the opening sequence is really intense. I mean, and it's, it's a classic horror way to open a film. Mm-hmm. Like it's very actually quite similar to the opening of the ring or like, it has a, a similar shock value as like it follows. Yes. 
Yeah, where you see something that isn't the actors from our main part of the film, but is about the like the legend or the yeah entity or the whatever, right? Yeah, it kind of sets the stakes for what can happen. Yes, yes. I like that. I mean, I mean, I know it's a like common structure mm-hmm. for horror, but damn, I like it. It's really good. There was a person sitting with their seat so far back. Oh, Lord. Yeah, right. So I am not a fan of theaters where the seats can go so, so far back that no human would have any leg room if the seat goes all the all the way that far back. Like if the seats shouldn't be able to do that if it's going to impede the leg room of the person sitting behind them that significantly. And you yeah. were originally sitting behind that person, but you have longer legs than me. And we were with our friend Ashley, who also has longer legs than me. So I was like, well, I'll sit here. So I just, every time they leaned all the way back, I pushed. Yeah. Because why do you get to lean all the way back? And I have to crumple up my legs yeah. for you. And uh, And that always made them put the seat back, but it was a little bit of a battle throughout the movie yeah it's just not fun it's a really poor movie theater seat design and i'm curious i'll throw it out to you listeners because i am curious hit us up on bad at baddad.raddad on instagram or threads but i prefer a seat that doesn't recline i like a solid back seat that i can lean up against and it has (laughs) it it has uh no give it's just a solid seat because then i can sit up straight uh, I don't have to worry about accidentally leaning back if I'm sitting in front of somebody because I feel that pressure of not leaning back too far and being that doink. But I know some people love a reclining seat, but I want to know what's your theater seat preference. Uh, hit us up. But um, a couple more things that I just wanted to mention quick is that we watched this the oh, yeah. same day that we saw Oppenheimer. We did an Oppen- Oppenoctomy. <laughs> We got an oponoctomy. Um, so that was that was something too, because we had already just endured a three-hour film, had a quick break, and then went to see Talk to Me. Um, I can see how. I mean, I I feel like going to a fun horror movie was a nice break or a nice change of pace from. Oppenheimer, and I can see why people would rather do the Oppenarby as opposed to a Barbenheimer. Mm-hmm. But like we said on our Barbenheimer show, you should go see Barbie, then go see Oppenheimer, then go see Barbie again. That's the and point. then go see Barbie again. Yeah, just, why not? Right. <laughs> <laughs> just keep seeing Barbie. Yeah, it was a. I mean, it was a lot. And it was at like West Edmonton Mall, which is not my favorite place in the world <laughs> yeah. to be. But I like movies so much that like I don't I don't objectively feel like having seen Oppenheimer in the same day impacted the way that I saw Talk to Me. Yeah. And we had like a decent enough break. Like we had a couple hours between them. So got I, some food. Yeah. And it was really great that because it was this advanced screening and it wasn't clear if Talk to Me was going to be coming to theaters. I think it is, but it, it wasn't clear at the time seemed like the audience really wanted to be there. Like it was a good crowd. Yeah, Yeah, it was, which I really appreciated. Last point I want to make is just Sophie Wilde was really, really good in this. Yeah. As Mia. Yeah. She gets so much to deal with emotionally and she is definitely the link between all of the people throughout the film and her backstory is intense and, you know, not 
anything outside of a typical horror film, but I feel like what she's given to deal with, uh, she handles really, really well. And she has such a expressive face that it just kind of draws you in. Um, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I was going to say too, like in terms of the, how this film looked and the visual effects, I thought some of the camera work was also really cool. Like there's one scene where somebody like kind of throws their head back and the camera follows them. Like it just whips that same way. So it's a lot of stuff like that. Just like really good filmmaking, really good acting. I'm always down for more people starting a career in horror. I, I get sad when I thought we had Ari Aster as our new horror guy and he seems to be now moving away from horror and I really liked what they did with this and I'd want to see more horror movies from them but maybe they're going to go and make an action movie next who knows <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah I don't know but uh I liked this movie I didn't totally love it A24 and Online Ceramics put out a set of t-shirts some of which are really sick and I'm like did I like this movie enough to pay like over a hundred bucks for a t-shirt <laughs> Yeah, wouldn't American money, American shipping. Um, yeah, I agree. And I think ironically, because there's been a lot of talk about this with Barbie and Oppenheimer with like them being overhyped. Um, a lot of folks who saw this before us on Letterboxd were giving it like 4.5s and 5s. And I was like, holy shit. And then it just wasn't that for me. I think I got so excited that this was going to be my new favorite horror movie of all time. And I just really liked it. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Yeah. I don't know. You know, this conversation, just kind of unpacking it and thinking about it a little bit more. I think I like I would revisit it, but I'm not scrambling back to the theater to it comes to Metro. Yeah, totally. Totally. But like we said, if you're into some intermediate or worth checking out. I think that if you're um, not a big horror person, this would feel like advanced horror, though. All right. Because it's gory. Yeah. So some things to think about. Some things to think about. How would you classify talk to me? Entry, intermediate, advanced? I don't know. I'm not asking you. You're asking the people. Yeah, I'm asking the people. All right, peeps. Let us know. How to make you feel? Uh, that perfect horror blend of fun and scared. You? Just a sense of exciting dread. I love horror movies. <laughs> I also love horror movies. Okay, we went back to the theater and we were really seeing a lot of movies at West Edmonton Mall this week, which is not usually where we go, but that's where the IMAX theater is. That's where the one advanced showing of Talk to Me was. And that's the only theater that was still playing the next movie that we saw, which is Joyride, a 2023 comedy directed by Adele Lim and written by Lim, Cherry Chefa Pravada, Demrong, and Teresa Shao. Starring Ashley Park as Audrey, Sherry Cola as Lolo, Stephanie Shu as Kat, and Sabrina Wu as Deadeye. Synopsis for this one is it follows four Asian American friends as they bond and discover the truth of what it means to know and love who you are while they travel through China in search of one of their birth mothers. I really wanted to see this movie. Like um, when I saw the trailer for it, I really like Sherry Cola. She's in a <laughs> it's basically a soap opera, but it's like a liberal soap opera <laughs> um, called Good Trouble, which is a spinoff of the Fosters that I watch. And she's her character is one of my favorite characters in the show. Um, and then, of course, we really like Stephanie Hsu. So I was like, this looks like the kind of comedy I can get on board with. I'm not a huge comedy person, but I like the idea of this. 
And then you were sick for two weeks mm. while it was in the theater. And then we were prioritizing seeing Barbie and Oppenheimer as soon as you could go to the theater. Um, and then when we looked at this one, it was only playing in West Edmonton Mall. It was gone from every other theater in the city. And it was going to be gone on the Thursday. Mm-hmm. So we were like, well, we got to get to this before it's gone. And so we did. What did you think of Joyride? I was really looking forward to this. You know, the Ronchcom is in full swing in 2023 uh, between this and No Hard Feelings. And this is raunchier. I agree. And I will argue better. Oh, yeah. I liked this more than No Hard Feelings for sure. Uh, I was looking forward to I was just looking forward to more from Stephanie Shu because I really liked her in everything everywhere. That was my first time seeing her in anything. And I just I thought she was really great. And she's really great in this as well. Everybody's really great in this. I found this to be really fun, but really also really funny. Hits on the calm. Uh, But raunch indeed. It, uh, It does the raunch really well, though. And it was really I like a road trip or road trip adjacent kind of kind of story. So all of this this ragtag group of friends you know, like they they have sort of typical roles that these characters take on in comedies, but I felt like it was done in such a refreshing way. Like I really liked each of the characters. There was no one that I felt was dead weight or anything like that. I enjoyed everybody. Yeah, I think that they all did a really great job. And I think each of those four main actors are well known for something they've been in. And while everybody who's going to the theater might not know all four of them, um, they've kind of been spotted in other places. So it's nice to have them get a bigger budget film that they're all in together. Mm -hmm. Um, Two of the writers, not Adele Lim, who was, I believe, a co-writer on Crazy Rich Asians. Mm. um, But the other two writers, they were writers on Family Guy, which kind of tracks. Yeah, yeah. I love, of course, we loved Family Guy when we were younger, but I've grown far beyond Family Guy and think it's a bit yucky. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, Teresa uh, Shao was a co-creator of Aquafina. Is Nora from Queens? Oh, okay. There are, there's at least one cameo from a from yeah from that, and there's a similar kind of humor, I think. Yeah, totally. And we didn't. I don't know if we finished Nora from Queens, but. We watched quite a bit of it. It was really funny. Really funny, yeah. And Adele Lim, this is what she has said about the making of the movie. She said, quote, this journey begins with me, Cherry, and Teresa, they're the co-writers, mm-hmm. wanting to tell a story with characters who look like us about women who are messy and thirsty, but have so much heart. <laughs> and I think they achieved that. Messy, 100%. thirsty, so much heart. It was actually really awesome to have a movie where like women just want to have sex. Yeah, very sex positive in terms of women. Yeah, and I, I honestly feel like we don't see a lot of that. I, maybe a little bit more on like HBO sitcoms, mm-hmm. but I don't feel like we see that in film all that often. Um, and especially not in something that is kind of being marketed as a light comedy. Yeah. I'm sure that there's some folks who got more than they were hoping for when they saw <laughs> yeah. it, but it was really refreshing like that's my kind of raunchy comedy where like women are put in the driver's seat and 
they would just want to like they're just messy and thirsty and i love that <laughs> yeah no i th- i think uh i th- i think that p- that part of it was great and just really well executed in terms of um leveraging comedy for that it has some really great bits and moments throughout but it actually what surprised me is that it has some heart that landed for me mm-hmm. in this like i think that there is an emotional core as said in the synopsis of like going and and finding one of their birth mothers there's a, there's a there's a moment or a whole kind of story around that that i think was pretty well developed and landed emotionally for me and that's kind of nice when the the heart of a primarily comedy comes through actually is it seems well thought out and serves the overall story i mean i no go ahead like i think at the end of the day it's a pretty easy movie yeah but i think we need easy movies that feature other kinds of people yeah like i'm always gonna want to see like we're gonna keep making movies like this Mm -hmm. and so i'd love to see these movies with different kinds of folks in it yeah and so I, I really loved that. I loved when it was humor. We talked about this, I think. I don't know if we talked about this in our last episode or if it was in our Barbenheimer episode, but the idea of punch up humor. Mm-hmm. So like, yes, there are some jokes at the expense of white people, but like, hey, we deserve it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I would call that punch up humor. There also was just some stuff that like killed for us um, because we have, a brother-in-law who's Taiwanese. Yeah. Um, there was some jokes specific to like Koreans versus Japanese folks versus Chinese folks versus Taiwanese folks. That was really funny. Yeah. Um, and I would watch a million sequels. Yeah. No, me too. I, w- I would continue to watch any movies in the Joyride series. And it was cute too because there was a lot of there was actually quite a few people in the theater and little pockets of groups of them presenting people like just kind of like all the girlies out for like girls movie night. And which was also great to see because this had been out for a while was only playing in one theater in all of Edmonton mm-hmm. and it was still pretty busy. And there was, yeah, these like the girls going out together and it was really, really cute. I also have to say between talk to me and this and then of like, the new evil dead and other TV shows and movies. I'm really loving the like non-binary representation mm-hmm. um, in TV and film and having it be something that's there, but not PSA there. Yeah. It's like these people exist and it's just, that's normal. Yes. Yeah, so that's just who this person is. And yeah. I, I really, really love that because I do think that um, in this film, it's perhaps a little bit more focused on because there's kind of a journey with all of the characters to like understanding who they are. Um, but there's a non-binary binary actor and a non-binary character that they play in Talk to Me. And it's just very casual. Like you just pick up on the fact that they use they, them pronouns and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I'm loving that. I want more of that. Yeah, I agree. Do we want to get into what we teased in our Barbenheimer episode about the experience we had in this movie? It's yeah. kind of it's kind of a part A, part B. 
I'll I'll talk about part A first, and then I'll let you talk about part B. And part A is just that, you know, like I said, the movie was busy, but it wasn't packed. And so we picked seats that were kind of away from most of the people. But then these two people decided to pick seats that were one seat away from us. So they were really close. But they, as soon as the movie started, they whipped out like, I don't know if it was a Mickey or a little bit bigger bottle of booze and are just starting pouring it into their drinks. Uh, so they were just getting, just kind of getting drunk in this movie and chatting at full volume throughout it, which was quite distracting. Yeah, and this was one of those times where I didn't necessarily feel comfortable saying anything because I knew that there was like hard liquor involved. Yeah. Like we talked about recently our experience when we went to good boys and there was these kind of three men having like a party Mm -hmm. in the theater. And I'm like, I just, that's not who I'm going to uh, fight that battle with. Yeah. It's a similar kind of thing going on. Yeah, I agree. And so we just kind of stuck it out through the movie it wasn't consistent chatter, but it was definitely sprinkled throughout the movie. And they were busy. And then they they left. They got like a large popcorn and barely ate a quarter of it and just left the bag behind. Also, just like clean up after yourself. It, this is a PSA for everybody. Yeah, they left like the booze bottle behind. Yeah, they left oh every, everything behind They and they left together. And then we're sitting in the credits and then the husband or the male partner comes back up to the top says hi to us and starts looking behind the seats and stuff and then asks us if we've seen his wife yeah but you think that was she behind the seats yeah what's going on (laughs) yeah that was weird and then she's like is she down there and we're like sure (laughs) we said yes we were just confused (laughs) he's like all right oh yeah have a good night And, and then he left very bizarre experience but not as bizarre as the part B of our experience. Well, I don't know that this was bizarre. It was just really frustrating. That was bizarre. Yeah. This man looking for his wife behind the (laughs) scenes. Did I drop her? Where is she? (laughs) They're playing hide and seek. Don't know what was happening. Yeah. This next one is a first. We go to a lot of movies. I think if you listen to the show, you know, we go to a lot of movies. Obviously our favorite place to see movies is Metro, but sometimes cineplex is playing the new stuff so that's what we'll go to you know what i'll say quickly before this this feels like a what happens here feels like a gut punch to our movie going ritual and makes me feel real pee pee poo poo yes sorry okay keep going um so we're sitting there guy just left after looking for his wife behind the seats um everybody else is gone and we're kind of just sitting through the credits as we do and, you know, in a movie like this, we're maybe a little bit chattier through the credits than we would be in like, after uh, Sun. yeah, an After Sun or a Rice Boy Sleeps or a Monica or even Oppenheimer, right? We were just kind of taking in what happened. Um, and then all of a sudden, like all the lights in the theater turn on, like harsh lighting, like yeah, the cleaning, lights. the cleaning lights. And an employee comes, clearly saw us there. Like, it's not like it was an accident and just starts cleaning. And we're kind of like, oh, and the credits are still playing. We're not even close to the end of the credits yet. And then this employee shouts at us like we're back row, like very back row. The employees at the very front of the theater and shouts, there's no end credit scene. Which, you know, between the turning on of the cleaning lights and the shouting of that from the like main part of the theater seemed to be saying to me, like, get out of here. Mm-hmm. And I totally get it. It's busy in theaters right now. I can't imagine the 
the stress of like turning over the theaters. People are getting into the theaters late because the concessions are so busy because they're so like theaters are so full right now Mm -hmm. between Barbie and Oppenheimer. Because that employee shouted rudely, we just didn't say anything back. And it was kind of happening at the same time that this guy coming back up and looking for his wife was happening. So and, we were just a little confused. And the the credits are playing, so there's music. That, yeah, it's that's loud. Playing, and it's loud. Like, I barely... There's a very David Lynch moment for me where he's yelling something at me, and I know he's yelling something at me. But you didn't know what it was. I couldn't really hear him, but you heard what he said. Yeah, yeah. so I just... We just kept sitting there. I didn't say anything to him. Um, And then eventually... I think he gave up on the fact that we were staying in the theater. So they turned the house lights off mm-hmm. and he went back to the side where people usually are. Like we go to lots of movies and specifically at Cineplex where they're turning things over faster. And I think at Metro people clean up after themselves better. Um, so there's not as much of a need to like clean, clean. Usually the employees are just kind of like sitting at the side waiting for people to get out and are very nice with like a have a good night or a thanks for coming in or whatever. Right. So now we're leaving. They've turned off the lights. The credits are done. We stand up to go. And as we stand up, you can see over the railing to like where you leave the theater. And there's three employees standing there. And one of them is literally mocking us. Like he says in a mocking voice, oh, cool. end credit scene. Enjoy ride. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) Like, so I am not one to stand for any bullshit. So I just said, yeah, we know there's no end credit scene. We just like to stay to the end of the credits in every movie. You don't have to be rude about it. And then that person, I mean, they were teenagers, but I'm also used to rude teenagers. Mm -hmm. And I will call out a rude student in my class in a gentle way. Mm -hmm. Um, That person seemed immediately embarrassed. Like, I don't necessarily think they meant for us to hear, but it wasn't cool. Um, and then they, they were like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to stay at the end of the credits too. I do, I do, I do. And then we just kind of left. Um, that's so, so obnoxious and so rude. Like think about like with what you said, yes, theaters are really busy right now. I used to work in a movie theater and I know how stressful it can be to turn over a movie theater, especially when something's really busy and you have to clear, clear it out as quickly as possible but people paid to have the full movie experience and have paid for the right to stay to the very end of the movie. So I would never be a doink to people that chose to stay through the credits and pop their movie bubble by turning on the cleaning lights and yelling at them essentially to get out. And I do, I do understand that like staying to the end of the credits because there might be an end credit scene is a more common thing now than it was when we were younger, when end credit scenes weren't Mm -hmm. what they are now. And maybe in the past that employee has been successful in being like, Oh, Hey, there's no end credit scene and people have left, but there's a nicer way to do it. Like, Hey, if you guys are staying for an end credit scene, there isn't one like say it really informatively. And then I would have been like, Oh no, we just like to stay to the end of the credits. Sorry. Yeah. Like don't yell at me from across the theater with the lights already on and you're, you've already started cleaning. Yeah. Well, anyway, and it just as a comparison, we went to a sold out show of Barbie last night, stayed till the end of the credits and we weren't the only ones, but as we're walking out, the staff were extremely nice. They were like, hope you enjoyed the movie. Have a really good night. Thanks and, for coming out. And then there was a second set of people or a person that, like kept saying the same thing, reiterated the same thing. 
And that arguably is a much harder movie to clean because it was sold out. And there no doubt that they have other movies that need to clean as well. But it was met with so much more kindness and patience. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I really do think it was probably just a three employees were teenagers. Teenagers can be silly, (laughs) you know, like I don't I don't think anyone like was trying to be rude. I think they're stressed out. They probably have pressure from their managers to turn these theaters over quickly and they're feeling like it's the end of the world if they don't get us out three minutes earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did write to Cineplex and I feel like I was really nice about it. Like I just said like, Hey, this is what happened. And I said in it, we see dozens of movies at Cineplex a year and this is the first time anything like this has happened. So I know that this is a rarity. I just want to like bring it to your attention. And I specifically said, you know, so your manager, like, so the manager of Scotiabank can think about messaging like I'm putting it on the manager, not really the employees, right? To like make sure that their staff know how you should interact with people who are still in the theater when you are ready to clean it. Oh, yeah. I mean, in my experience working at a movie theater, when a big blockbuster is out, the manager is just, they're just losing their minds because it's like, we need to clean this as soon as possible so we can get everybody back on concession because concession is nuts right now. Yeah. So I understand that pressure. I understand the urgency, but I think you're right. I think it's just about the way of communicating that because if you're just being doinks to your employees and stressing them out. Then they're going to put that on to, they're more likely to put that on to the theater goers. Exactly. Yeah, it was a it was a frustrating experience and I was really angry at the time. I think now I'm more empathetic to those young theater workers who were probably so stressed out and and I and I really don't think that they were trying to piss us off. They but, succeeded. But they uh, I agree. Yeah. They weren't trying. Yeah. It was just like I felt very I don't know. This seems intense. I felt attacked because I have always stayed through the credits and I've always understood people wanting to stay through the credits. So I just yeah, feel like there was so, a degree of like, we don't just stay to the credits for an end credit scene. How dare you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How dare you? Like I expect that? them to know that this is my, this is, <laughs> this is our thing that we always do. But, uh, I but that's a little unfair. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It was just wild because that's never happened to us before where we got yelled at and mocked. It was, it was very lynchy and because of the whole, like, looking for your wife behind the seats after you drank a Mickey of booze. (laughs) (laughs) And then that was happening and the lights were on. And, you know, the day before we saw Oppenheimer and talk to me. So like we were just in, it was, it was a lot, but anyway, this has been enough talk about this. How did Joyride make you feel? Uh, A joyful, raunchy. It made me feel joyful, raunchy, heartwarming, fun. How did it make you feel? Happy for the laughs and the representation. Okay, last one of the week. It's a biggie, but a greatie. <laughs> uh, we revisited the 2019 drama horror mystery film Midsommar. Finally. It was written and directed by Ari Aster, and it stars Florence Pugh as Danny, Jack Rayner as Christian, Wilhelm Blockgren as Pele, William Jackson Harper as Josh, Will Poulter as Mark, Alora Torchia as Connie, and Archie Matikwe as Simon. Synopsis. A couple travels to northern Europe to visit a rural hometown's fabled Swedish midsummer festival. What begins as an idyllic retreat quickly devolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre competition at the hands of a pagan cult. 
I picked this because it's yours, Kylie's, Midsummer. It is my Midsummer. <laughs> um, and I wanted a little bit, if you listen to our Barbenheimer episode, I wanted a little bit of Florence Pugh redemption after being kind of done dirty in Oppenheimer. I'm just like, I just want to watch a really good Florence Pugh performance. So I picked this. We watched the director's cut, which we have a beautiful edition of from a 24 store. Yeah, this has been a long time coming because this is, not to bury the lead, this is one of our faves. What do you think of Midsommar? So I want to start with the pronunciation. (laughs) Yeah. Because I feel like there are two people in this world, people that pronounce it Midsommar, and people who pronounce it Midsummer and think that people who pronounce it Midsommar are pretentious. And we've been both of these people. We've been both. The reason we pronounce it Midsommar is that's how Ari Aster pronounces it. Yeah. So not a pretentious thing, just a, that is how the director of the film pronounces the title of the film. Um, and it was a tough pill to swallow making the transition from yeah. Midsummer Because I feel like every time I say it, I'm acting like a Barcelona <laughs> or a yeah. Melbourne, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which like, you know, if those are the proper ways to pronounce those cities. But there's just something about like, okay. There's you just know. like something pretentious yeah. white person about Midsommar. Midsommar. <laughs> but, you know, we've watched interviews where that is how, how Ari Aster pronounces it. <laughs> so we're going to be those pretentious cocks pronouncing Midsommar. <laughs> um, yeah, I love this movie. You love this movie. I want to talk about the first time we ever saw it. Yeah. Um, I was going back and trying to find the photo, but I think I took it right on, like right on Instagram. So it's not in my um film role but what happened was we really wanted to see it we knew we really wanted to see it which is interesting because we weren't like head over heels with hereditary Mm -hmm. but i think we liked hereditary we had a bad theater experience with it but we were really intrigued by what this director was going to do next and he still was kind of up and coming because he'd only made hereditary Mm -hmm. But I was about to leave for a week-long vacation with my mom in Prince Edward Island. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was like the advanced screening show was the only show before I left for PEI and we didn't want to wait a week to see it. Yeah, I feel like it was on a Wednesday. It might have been. It yeah. was like a thing where this was our first chance to see it before I leave. And if we didn't see it before I leave, we were going to be like a week behind everybody else. Yeah. So we went to like a 10.50 show of a two hour, 40 minute movie when you had to work the next morning. And this was pre pandemic when you went into the office every day, <laughs> yeah. which meant that even though you start at nine, you have to leave the house much earlier. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, ah, we can hang out until one in the morning. You can just wake up at eight 45. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, it was a, it was a thing. Like it was yeah. an adventure because we were staying up late. We were, yeah. Doing the thing. It very much wasn't a, I need to drag myself out of the house to see this. It's like, I'm amped up and I'm going to get a large yeah. popcorn with yeah. butter and a yeah. large pop at 10 p.m. <laughs> Which like maybe for some folks, it's like, yeah, you just stay up and watch a movie. But like we don't stay out late when we work the next day typically. Well, and the other wild thing is that this was also the at midnight after the day after this, the new season, the, the newest season at the time of Stranger Things was dropping. That might have been what it was, is that we saw Midsommar that night because we were going to w- try and watch all of Stranger Things before I left. Yes. Yep. So we had right. so we had two days to try and get that all done. 
because I think it was Stranger Things 3. And yeah, so we went to Midsommar. I think got, we came home and watched some Stranger Things. Yeah. And then I and had then to finished, work. Yeah, the you next worked day. the next day and then we finished Stranger Things and then I left the day after. I don't know how much anybody else cares about this. So let's start talking about Midsommar. <laughs> <laughs> um, we loved it when we saw it. Like this was one of those experiences kind of like seeing Talk to Me. And if you know, if you listen to our Barbenheimer episode, unfortunately, Elliot didn't get to be a part of this, but I saw Barbie on the advanced screening day. And I find for the most part, if you go to a movie on the advanced screening, people are all in for the most part. There's been the rare exception. And since we saw this so early and it was so late at night, like everyone who was there really wanted to be there. Mm -hmm. And unlike our shitty hereditary experience, people were just dialed in to this. And there's some really, if you've seen Midsommar, you know, there's some really shocking moments in this where if you saw Hereditary, you knew that Ari Aster was capable of some nasty gore and you knew he was capable of shocking you with it. But the first time you see Midsommar, I still don't think you see it coming. And then it happens. And I distinctly remember my hand going over my mouth and staying there for a very long time because mm-hmm. I was just shocked. Um, and it was just such a fantastic first time seeing this, which is probably part of the reason we love it so much. We then saw it again when it came to Metro and then Metro did the director's cut, which was really cool. And so we saw it a third time. We bought the poster, like the theatrical poster. It's in our house beside Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Pearl. And I've just loved it ever since. Yeah. I'm just obsessed with it. I know it seems to be pretty divisive. Like most people I know either like full love it or full hate it. And I haven't seen a lot of like mid range responses to it, but I'm a full love. Yeah, I feel like even though Ari Aster has now done Bo is Afraid, his third film, there's still those two camps of people. It's like, are you more hereditary or are you more Midsommar? I think both of us are more Midsommar, even though our love for hereditary has grown over time. This is my favorite of Ari Aster's work, but also it's just one of my all-time favorite movies and not just horror movies. Agreed. Um. Just everything in it works for me. I think that it has an especially strong opening and closing. I think that the way the film is bookended is really, really strong. This was the my first, well, I guess our first introduction to Florence Pugh. Yeah, this was the first time I saw her in anything, and I was just floored. Yeah, and and just another example of the incredible and blood-curdling performances that Ari Aster is able to get out of his leading women that are in his films. It's just something else. Nobody else is... What he gets from Tony Collette in Hereditary and Florence Pugh in this... You but I would also say Joaquin Phoenix in Bo Was Afraid, like just from his leads. Yeah. He's able to... I don't... He's a very unique director and he's able to pull performances out of both newer and more veteran actors that I haven't seen from them before or seen since in what I've seen of Florence Pugh since Midsommar. She hasn't replicated what she does in Midsommar to the same degree. I don't think I I hesitate to give all of that credit to Ari Aster. I think that's like a little gross. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I don't, I don't mean to do that. I just mean, that I th- I think that the performances 
in his films from these actors is really, really great. And whether I think Tony Collette's a superstar in everything she's in. That's true. And Florence P don't worry, darling, not good. But well, Florence think, Pugh, very yeah, good. Yeah, I think that's the 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 tough pill to swallow is that this was our first introduction to Florence Pugh and we loved her so much in it. And then some of the things we've seen her in since, even when she's been really great in them, either the movies have been pretty shit or her role in them has been very minor. Like even like she's really good in Little Women, but she's not the lead. Mm -hmm. Like that's Saoirse Ronan, right? Um, and she's given very little to work with in Oppenheimer. She's great in the MCU, but it's a totally different kind of role. So I'm looking forward to when she kind of gets another project where she's the lead and it's not dumb. Don't worry, darling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, Ari Aster. He's really good with grief and relationships and complicated relationships, whether they be familial or uh, romantic, if you could call them romantic. There are still moments in this movie that give me chills. And I look forward to them every time, especially in the last act of the movie, especially the closing moments for the way that the score just swells and what he chooses to linger on for our final moments. So, so powerful and upsetting and glorious. There's just, so <laughs> he's able to get a lot of emotions out of you across all of his films. Bo is, the, Bo is Afraid is the same, same kind of thing as well. But the talent overall in this is is really great. I mean, the character of Christian, total shit heel, and yeah. the director's cut does him no favors. No, I think the this is a film where, I mean, the director's cut is a three hour movie, and that's intense. But I do think it's it's worth it. Like I think there's enough that it adds, mm -hmm. and enough that is lost when you watch the original that it's worth watching the director's cut. We were really excited when we saw this because we're big The Good Place fans. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and William Jackson Harper is cheaty in The Good Place. Um, Will Poulter, I kind of like when he shows up in things and he plays a perfect jerk in this. He's great comic relief. He's a great fool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's an ass, but they give him some great bits. But what keeps me going back to this film is that relationship between Danny and Christian and just what this film is saying about those types of relationships, which of course in this case is romantic, but I don't think, I think this film can speak to that type of a relationship even when it's not romantic. And there's a, there's a catharsis in this movie that is complicated depending on how you're looking at the events of the film. I think it becomes complicated when you look at it as both a horror film and an allegory. And for me, I can either look at it as a horror film or look at it as an allegory. Mm -hmm. And I don't really put the two together. Mm. Like I either watch it as a horror film, in which case you might feel one way about how the film ends, or I watch it as an allegory for a shit relationship. Yeah. In which case I feel a different way about the ending. And I don't really mix those two because I feel the same way about hereditary that hereditary, you can either just watch it as like a straight horror film or you can watch it as a allegory for grief and within a family and complicated family dynamics and how we pass those traits on like 
to the people in our family and how we try and reckon with that. Um, and I really like Ari Aster when he's using horror as a vehicle to explore these things. Like he has specifically said about this movie that it is quote, a breakup movie dressed in the clothes of a folk horror film. I feel mm-hmm. like Bo is afraid isn't doing that as much Yeah, where it's like taking a genre and using it as a vehicle to tell a different kind of story. Yeah. And I love that. Like this to me, Midsommar is a great pairing with possession. Yes. Very much so. Do you always, do you always find that you're watching it through the horror lens or the allegory lens? Or do you find there's a, there's a blend? I can watch them as both at the same time, but I don't see them together. If that makes sense. Mm. Like I can watch it as both, but they're both alongside each other. They're not mixed. If that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Because I think if you look at it as a breakup film and a horror film, then that's where people start getting like pissy about the ending and people liking the ending. And they're like, well, this and this and this and this and this. And I'm like, but I don't, I think there's one version of it where it's a horror film and another version of it where it's a breakup film and you can watch those in tandem, but I don't think that they cross paths. Yeah. I, and I think that being able to look a little deeper maybe see more of the allegory and see what the movie might be suggesting or representing possibly, or at least what my interpretation of what it's representing, that's where it pulls more motion out of me and gives me those chills that I mentioned before. And it just, it just works on me. It, it, it works super well and I've, I've never gotten yeah, because I've seen the critiques that you're talking about and the the ways that people have often shit on Midsommar. And I just never felt that way. I never looked at it that way. I never, and a lot of those critiques feel very surface level. Like, it's just like, this is what Yeah, but I think I those people might say the same thing about loving the movie, right? So I'm open to, like, I understand why people either just plain don't like the movie or why they find it troubling. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't dismiss that. I just feel differently. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, more recent comparison could be Oppenheimer. Like Oppenheimer required a lot more of me to get me there emotionally. Might be the same for people with Midsommar of they, they weren't able to just get that connection as immediately or vice versa. Doing a lot of hot takes today, Elliot. I'm not. I mean, like these are like flag, flag in the ground. I'm, I'm unwilling to budge on it, but it's just like kind of what I'm feeling. Just looking at stuff and and reading about stuff about these. I felt on this particular viewing, while I noticed it before, just really taking in how gorgeous this movie is, and just how well shot it is, and the production design, and whatever flower artist they had <laughs> is doing just the Lord's work on this movie. I know I've read a lot um, and heard a lot and had conversations with folks who like, I can't speak to this. I don't, I don't know. And, and I, I don't, you don't either, but that the um, hallucination scenes are very accurate. Mm-hmm. They don't go like over the top with it in a way that's like untrue to real life. Um, and I was reading that Ari Aster really struggled with that, that like at times it was so distracting that like it, a viewer 
he worried that a viewer would lose sight of what was actually going on. And then at times it was so subtle that he was like, I don't think they'll even notice that there's hallucinations happening. And I just find those elements of it and this using that as a device for a creation of like disorientation really strong. Mm-hmm. Um, so many great Halloween costumes have come out of this movie. Mm-hmm. The final shot of the movie may well be my favorite final shot of any movie or it's up there yeah. for sure. It's in the, the, the tops. Um, I mean, I love this movie so much. I have a tattoo of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, it, it does so many of the things that I, that I love. Uh, a lot of long takes, love a long take. I love that the flower dress went up for auction and like, that was something you could buy. Who Apparently Ariana Grande tried to get it and didn't succeed. No, man. Bummer. Yeah. But uh, I think that we have and will continue to watch this at least once a year. Uh, I am hopeful that, you know, now that Ari Aster's done, Bo is afraid. He'll which go is, back to horror. That he'll just, he'll go back to horror because he, he's so good at it. And it's such a great medium that he, like you were saying, utilizes to tell stories. And his the stories he chooses to tell are just so compelling to me. And so like distressing on a visceral level in a way that horror doesn't always succeed at for me. My one major critique of this film, and every time I watch it, it bothers me a little bit more because it is one of my all time favorite films is the ableism in it. Like there's a Mm. character who really adds nothing to the film other than like, Oh, people with non-normative bodies are freaky. Yeah. And it's just such a shame because if that was taken out, I don't think it would change anything about the movie. And it was also that character was featured prominently in the trailers. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've heard similar critiques of Nope and the one character in Nope mm. where like her face was featured prominently in the trailers as a like, oh, people with faces that have had trauma or faces that are different. They're freaky. Come watch it. And Um, I am a fan of like body horror and non-normative bodies and the ways that makes people feel, but I think how it's being used is really important. And, and I do feel like that's a failure of this movie Mm -hmm. and it bums me out every time because I'm like, it's just not necessary. Yeah. It just adds nothing to the movie. Yeah. And you're right. The fact that it was so prominently featured in the trailer when it is not a prominent part of the film. And I remember after we saw the movie, I was like, oh, I was really surprised that that character didn't matter more. Yeah. Like you see them very infrequently and then it's just kind of there, I think, for shock value. So, yeah, that's disappointing. But otherwise, this movie is such a like slam dunk for me. And it's almost to that point of like, it's one of those movies in a similar vein to after sun for me where the movie just means so much to me in ways that I can't always explain. Mm -hmm. There's something about this movie that just speaks to me very deeply in a different way than after sun, but as deeply. Mm -hmm. And so when other people don't like it, it's hard not to feel defensive because it's not just like, Oh yeah, you don't like the movie. It's like, ah, but then it feels like that's an attack on me because there's such a deep way that I connect with this movie. Right. Um, Yeah, and it's really, you know, this is something that 
it seems like the folks involved are really proud of it too, right? Like, I mean, look at the way that Florence Pugh so awesomely demonstrated that she didn't give a shit about Don't Worry Darling and didn't enjoy her time on it. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas she has a Midsommar tattoo. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have a really beautiful quote from her where she's talking about the character of Danny. And she said, quote, I created such a sad person and then felt guilty that I'd created that person and then left her. I've never had that before. I've always thought all my characters, once I left, they'll be fine. She can't fend for herself. Almost like I created this person and then I just left her when I had to go do another movie. Mm. So like there was a, a real like connection there. And I, I, I love that. Yeah. I also love Ari Aster calls this the wizard of Oz for perverts. (laughs) (laughs) And I love the wizard of Oz. So maybe it's no wonder that I love this movie so much. Yeah. That that's uh, I like going back to just what Florence Pugh said. Like, I feel like Danny is just such a unique character that I haven't seen done well in, in, in many films. And she's a character that sticks with me. And yeah, I just I, this movie's really great. <laughs> this movie's really great, and rewatching it after seeing Bo is Afraid, it just reaffirms what I already knew, but even more so that not only is Ari Aster good with horror and with upsetting imagery and telling unique stories through a medium, but he's also really funny. He has a good lock on gallows humor, and I think that that was really apparent in Bo is Afraid, but it exists here too, especially through character of will poulter um or will poulter's character yeah i I hope i hope he returns to it or whatever he chooses to do i'll I'll go see whatever he does next because he's one of my favorite filmmakers that's making stuff i really like right now Yeah, even even when we didn't love bo's afraid i enjoyed watching it and i enjoy the way that he approaches things yeah and i'm and i'm interested to see what he what he applies that to and he gets really good talent to work with him too. Not just on screen, but the crew that he gets to help him execute his vision. He works with really great people. Yeah. Midsommar. Love it. Five out of five. Despite some of its, one of its misfires <laughs> is uh, our favorite. We'll, we'll be returning to time and time again. How would it make you feel? Every time I watch this, it just makes me feel a deep catharsis. Mm-hmm. You? Just an overall sense of awe and enjoyment. Hey, let's talk about dads. Who is your bad dad nominee of the week? Christian. Of course. <laughs> Come yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah, he's um he's an ultimate bad dad, dismissive of other people, and yet opportunistic and selfish, and that's not just in relation to Danny. Um, and I think that the director's cut especially shows that, that like his, his relationship with his friends is not cool either. And mm. he's not a good communicator. And then he's a petty little baby when like he gets called out on it. Um, the gaslighter. And I, and the, like the most frustrating thing about him is I don't think he does any of it on purpose. He's just a piece of shit. Yeah. And I think the sad truth about Christian is that I've, known and seen so many Christians throughout my life. Not Chrizos, but people like the character Christian. Yeah. And that that breaks my heart a bit. But I agree with everything you said. He's a dinky donkey dingus. He's 
he has this very arrogant obliviousness to him. He's a piss poor communicator. Like you said, yeah, he's a bad he's a bad friend in addition to being a bad partner. And he can frick off with pleasure. Okay, Christian. Don't, don't be, be our dad. dad. Who is your rad dad? I picked Deadeye. So did I. Oh, nice. Man, we've been like firing on all cylinders lately with picking the same people. Yeah. yeah. Deadeye is awesome and I would watch a movie that they are the center of. 100%. Uh, just some great qualities of Deadeye. I mean, I, they're supportive of the people in their life. They're kind. They're fun. And who doesn't love a fun dad? <laughs> uh, they're patient. Hilarious. Just present and aware of what's going on with the peeps in their life. And I think the the purest thing is that they're just themselves. They don't really, it feels like they're on a bit of a journey of self-discovery, but not at the, det- they don't change at the detriment to themselves or anything like that. No. Yeah, it's really... I don't think I have much to add because I think you said that really nicely. But there's just this like beautiful blend of silly and heartfelt and serious and like being a hype person for others mm-hmm. and just being like so sincere. That yeah. is really, really lovely. And yet, as the movie goes on, like not taking other people, treating them like shit. Yeah. Which is really cool. I, I I really liked that character. I think when you see the trailers for Joyride, it seems like Deadeye is going to just be like the butt of the joke. And that's really not how the movie goes. And yeah, yeah. I think I, I like that character the best. Yeah, because I feel like the journey is just handled really well because it's like their own journey of self-discovery. But it's also they're, they play a, a part in the other people's self-discovery and discovery about... Because I feel like it, the storytelling is done really well where through the trailers, like you said, we have this idea of who Deadeye is, but I also feel like the other characters have an idea of who Deadeye is and they don't even fully understand that. Yeah. But who doesn't love a friend or a parent that could that just gasses you up? So good. Yeah. So Deadeye. Be your dad. dad. Okay. Rad Wreck. I feel like this is a very practical Rad Wreck. Yeah, uh, this is something we try to do semi-regularly, but our rad rec is to just reevaluate your subscription services. Um, I think what's top of mind is streaming services, but any anything that you're subscribed to, um, I think once you sign up, it can be really easy to just stick with it because you're already signed up. Um, but taking some time to be like, am I actually getting my money's worth out of it? Or, you know, would it be better to just do like it so for an example i'll give is i've done the indigo plus plum plus before but you have to spend a pretty obscene amount of money to even make your money back on it and then i found that i'm now buying books from a a company i don't support Mm -hmm. um and b books that i don't necessarily need that i could just get from the library just to get my money's worth and so in canceling that and not renewing it next year i will a, be able to buy books from like local bookshops that I support and be more mindful of if I want to physically own another thing or not um, and B, be more prone to use the library. Then that's something that we also do with our streaming services is uh, Letterboxd, which we're like an unofficial, not a sponsor for. <laughs> <laughs> um, it allows you to tag 
as you log movies, you can put tags on them and I will tag where we watched them because then I can click on that tag and see in the last month or the last handful of months or the last year, how often have I actually watched something on, say, Netflix? And is that service worth paying for for how often I'm using it? Um, so, yeah, I think it can just be a good idea to take some time to be like, what am I subscribed to and, and do I need to be? Also, hot tip is to when you sign up for a free trial of something, at least for streaming services, you can immediately cancel it and you will still get to have your free trial time with it, but then it just won't renew. So that's something we try and do is if it's like, okay, we're going to do a seven day trial of AMC plus because this movie we want to watch is on it. We will, before we even start the movie, go and cancel the subscription because then we won't forget and get charged for it. Yeah. I think especially for someone like me, who's a little Nero spicy that I can be very set it and forget it where I will subscribe to something at the end of a trial or I'll subscribe to a monthly plan of something. And then they're just taking money every month and I haven't even used that service in, in some time. Um, and I'm also, I haven't been keeping track of all the new subscriptions that I have and whatnot. So taking the time to, Think about everything you're subscribed to and what you're using. And then also, like, there's a couple of services that we're thinking of canceling, but we're going to write down all the things we want to watch from those services so that we can blast through those and then uh, intentionally cancel the service. Yeah. So just subscribing and managing your subscriptions with intention, I think, is super important, especially in a day and age where you have to subscribe to everything. Yep. That's it. Great Rad Rack. And thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Once again, highly recommend checking out our Barbenheimer episode. If you've been part of the cin- cinna- cinematic phenomenon that has been Barbenheimer, head on over and listen to what we have to think about it. Until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. We're also over on threads at baddad.raddad. You can get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. The usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these May Queens this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.